Please open your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. I'm going to read New King James Version. It says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. And finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. We've broken the, the, the four messages that we're going to hear over the next couple days uh, into four sections. And tonight we're going to be focused on verse 6 and the first part of verse 7 where Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure to his hand I have fought the good fight. And at the time Paul is writing this letter in about 66 AD, the persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero was in full swing. A few years earlier, in 66 AD, Nero, in his insanity, he burned Rome, and then he sought to pin it on the Christians, whom everybody already hated. And as a result, Christians were then persecuted, they were imprisoned, they were put on torches as human torches to light the uh, Roman alleyways at night. They were torn apart by dogs, others were... uh, Uh, mutilated in other ways, and it was just a very, very dark time for Christians, and would go on that way for quite some time. And the Apostle Paul, he's writing his final epistle of his life to a young pastor named Timothy, um, and Paul is in Rome. He is in chains, he is in a dungeon, which is most likely poorly lit, with poor sanitation. And we read earlier in... 2 Timothy 2, uh, where we find that he has been abandoned by most of the people that he brought to the Lord in Asia. That's 2 Timothy 1, uh, 15 actually. And, and it seems that the same is true in other areas that he brought people into the Lord. So Paul has just been totally abandoned by most of the people he brought to the Lord. And it is in this final chapter, this final letter to Timothy, that Paul says in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. Paul is going to die. The cloud of death is hovering over him, and Paul says that the time of my departure is hand. And it's interesting that word departure has kind of four different uh, meanings behind it. And the word can mean unyoking an animal from a plow. So it's no longer toiling anymore. It can also mean to loosen the bonds or fetters of chains. It can also mean to loosen the ropes of a tent peg, and it also means to loosen a ship, the mooring of a ship, so that it can set sail. And all these describe what this departure is like for Paul. Being unyoked from the toil of his life, being unchained from the prison that he's in, being removed from the tent of his earthly body, and setting out into the deep waters of death to his eternal home. His departure was at hand, and Paul, in his dungeon, senses the end is near and says, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. And so he grabs imagery from the Old Testament that his Jewish readers would understand and know and identify with to express what his final days are like, what his final act of his life is like. The people of God back in Numbers were commanded to offer burnt offerings and then a grain offering and lastly a drink offering. 
And the first offering that was prescribed for them to sacrifice was, was a prescribed animal, like a bull or a ram or a, a lamb. And then the second offering that was to be offered with it was a bread offering or a grain offering. And lastly, the very final offering, the one that was to be poured on the first two sacrifices that were already consumed, was the drink offering, usually of wine. And as we're going to refocus in our, in our last session, these ultimately point to the sacrifice of Jesus made on the cross, where He, the Lamb of God, was consumed where his body was broken, where his blood was poured out. And just as Christ was the fulfillment of that Old Testament picture of the sacrifice that was acceptable and pleasing to God, so Paul identifies his life with Christ as he now has lived a li- as a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1. As he relentlessly, every single day of his life, he follows after Christ, obediently filling God's call on his life and experiencing much agony, much suffering, much rejection, and by the way, much joy. And now in that dank Roman dungeon, Paul knows that his time is up. He's at the two-minute warning. And he says to a young Timothy, I'm already being poured out as that final offering, that final offering that was poured over the previous offerings that went up like a puff of smoke now as it hit the smoldering sacrifice already given. In church history, it says that Paul was beheaded. And perhaps Paul is thinking about what's going to happen to him as a Roman citizen because he was not allowed to be crucified as a Roman citizen. He would have his head cut off and blood would pour out of his body and that would be the final act before God of, here I am, I've given it all for you. And I think as we look at the life of Paul, other than Jesus, I mean, what an amazing life. A life totally dedicated to the Lord Jesus. Paul, I remember in, in, in the epistles, he says, you know, listen, all the other apostles, they're awesome, but, but I've done more than all of them. And he goes, not I, but the grace of God in me. He's forgiven me of so much. He's, he's shown me so much. He's been so merciful to me that the response of my heart and my life to the grace of God working in through me is, is to pour my life out for him. And he did it until his dying breath. And regardless of the bleakness of his earthly surroundings and the circumstances and the death that awaited him, he said with great confidence in verse 7 and verse 8, Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. He says, he's sitting in this dungeon and all these things, he's just waiting to get his head chopped off. And he sits there and says, and now... In this final moment, look at where I am, all these things. Look look at what's going on. Look at the circumstances where normal men would be in total despair. What does he say? Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. Man, this is this is what has been laid upon my heart for us as our time together for our time together this weekend that we along with Paul would have that confidence at the end of our days that 
we, like Paul, would have fought the good fight. We would have run the race. We would have kept the faith. That we would have, by the power of the Holy Spirit, just like our Lord, engaged ourselves fully in a fight to the death. And that fight is a daily fight, and it is a fight that will go on until the day that we stand before the Lord Jesus. And make no mistake, Jesus has fought the fight and won the battle. But now, he wants to fight through us, and live through us, daily. And I'm asking the Lord would awaken our spirits once again to... This high calling in Christ Jesus. So as Paul is about to leave this earth, he turns to a young Timothy back in verse 5. And he charges Timothy to fulfill his ministry. As his life ends, he turns to Timothy and says, now it's your turn. It's your turn. And I feel like that's what God would say to our, to our men. This is your time. This is your time. It's your time to fight. It's your time to run. It's your time to keep the faith. It's your time to make a stand. In this dark and perverse generation, that we would raise up and stand up, not in our own pride, but in humility and in love of Christ and stand with Him and fight. It's interesting. Paul tells Timothy, he charges him to fulfill his ministry there in verse 5, the verse that precedes what we just read. And the word there for ministry is uh, diakonia in the Greek. It just means, it's like a deacon. It means service. Fulfill your service to the Lord, Timothy. Each of us have been entrusted with a life of service from God to fulfill. Ministry is a God-empowered, God-given calling upon your life to fulfill. Fulfill it, Paul says. The word fulfill there means foolproof. Foolproof your ministry. To, to bear it, to make it full, to carry it through to the end, to accomplish it. To prove true what you have been entrusted with. Do it. Paul says, it's your turn, Timothy. I'm done. I have given you an example in the life I live and the death. I'm about to die just as Christ had. Just as I followed him, now you follow me. Now it's your turn. And in verse 7, Paul says to Timothy, illustrating for him and for us how he completes his service to God and what that life he was called to look like. Paul says to Timothy at the end of verse 7, I have fought the good fight. And that's what we're focusing on right now, tonight. The fight, the good fight. The life of a man who is following Christ is a fight. It's a fight, guys. And Paul, looking back on his life as a servant of the Lord Jesus, said, I have fought the good fight. And Paul expected Timothy to do the same. And we know this because Paul has said it multiple times to Timothy. If you go back to 1 Timothy 1.18, you can see, he says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, that you may fight the good fight. Timothy, fight the good fight. 
And then again, in chapter 6, verses 11, 12, 11 and 12 of 1 Timothy, he says, But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold of eternal life to which you are called. Paul says to Timothy, I'm charging you to engage in the good fight. Timothy, you are at war. You are engaged in a battle. What battle is Paul talking about? Well, there's warfare between God and Satan. That is what is going on. There is a war between God and Satan. In ancient times, the mighty angel Lucifer, many of you know this, who was marked by beauty and wisdom and splendor, he rebelled against God as he sought to ascend himself above God. And and so God cast Lucifer out of heaven and a third of the angels went with him and were cast down. Let me read Isaiah 14, 12 um, for you and a couple other verses there included 12 through 14. As it records Satan's folly, it says, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead and to the depths of the pit of the pit. And this world that we live in is under the influence and the control of Satan because you can see it plainly that man desires to ascend. They do not want to be humbled. We want to grow real high and we want to put our names on the building. Don't we? That's the way we work. When Satan took Jesus, where did he take him? To a real humble place? Where did he take him? High mountain. Look what I've got. Took him to the pinnacle of the temple. He's always trying to ascend. But what did Jesus say? God rejects the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will lift you up. Jesus descended and then he was what? Ascended above everything. And so God is at war with Satan. And Satan's mission is to usurp God's kingdom and establish his own. That is what he wants. He wants to defer the worship and the glory of God to himself. And let me tell you that if he cannot do it directly, he will do it indirectly. He wants to shipwreck the true worship of God. And Satan, who is very powerful, he's a spiritual being and his fallen angels called demons. They are actively waging war against God and his holy angels. And men who have not received Christ are under the influence of Satan as they are children of the devil, identified so in scripture. They are ruled by their own fleshly desires, which are reinforced by the fallen world around them, ultimately empowered by Satan as demons of which we've all been under the influence. It's the kingdom of sin and death. It's the kingdom of darkness. But believers in Christ are no longer of that kingdom. Amen. We have been what? We've been born again. 
As Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 5 says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you you once walked, according to the course of what? This world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to Satan, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, how? In the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath, just as the others are. But God, who is what? Rich in mercy because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Amen. Amen. We've been conveyed out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. God has rescued us. As Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. Amen. We're born again. We're children of God. By grace. And so we've switched sides. And now... By extension of being God's children, we are engaged in warfare against Satan, his demons, and this fallen world. And like Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.18, we are commanded to and entrusted with waging the good fight against Satan and his kingdom. And by the way, our own fallen, unredeemed flesh, the bodies of death that we are attached to. And notice in verse 18 that it is a command to fight. Oh, that's first, uh, sorry, first Timothy 1.18. Notice it's, it's not an option. I think it's very interesting how, how our Christianity works today. It's a Christianity of convenience quite often. We don't like to be told what to do. We like to do it when it's convenient for us. And here Paul says to Timothy, I charge you. You know what that word charge is? It's a military term. It's not up for discussion. Anybody ever been in the military? How many of you like to discuss stuff with your instructor, with your drill instructor, or with other guys? How did that go for you? Yeah, it's just like this is what you do. It's your duty. <laughs> I used to have a when I was back in Bible College in San Diego. We, you know, lived by the Marine Base, and we had a gunny sergeant who would always who would be in our class, and he'd come in downhearted half the time. And he's like, "Oh Lord, forgive me today." They're like, what's going on? He's like, I just chewed out everybody in the world. <laughs> it was just constantly just barraging these guys. He feels like he just had this conviction. There was just two worlds going on. But the, the thing was, it, they had to get it in their mind. It was not an option what he told them to do. Their life depended upon it. Everybody else's life depended upon whether or not they were obeying. That's a heavy thing. We are commanded to be in the fight. Timothy was commanded. I charge you, Timothy. A soldier is not called to fight when he feels like it. Now, Timothy was really in a difficult situation. Where he would have to wage war against people he knew. There were men in the church that were teaching false doctrine. Satan had infiltrated the church with false teachers and he had to confront them and talk to them and if necessary, kick them out of the church. And Timothy was younger than them. That was one of his main battles. 
Timothy had to confront them. And I have no doubt that much of what Timothy had to do and was called to do, he did not want to do. The fights he was called to fight, he didn't feel like doing. I know it. The reason why we know it is because Paul over and over and over has to encourage him. He has to keep reminding him. It seemed like Timothy was really just, he struggled in that area. Paul constantly had to command Timothy more than once to fight the good fight. It was his duty and it had nothing to do with convenience or desire. It had to do with obedience and allegiance and demonstration of love towards Jesus Christ. And I believe that many American men, we have lost our understanding of duty in many ways and it has influenced the church as our society has started to tank in so many ways, not as if it was always golden, but I'm just saying it is it is going downhill rapidly and 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 those are the people who get saved and come into the church and 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 when they're actually told you must obey the Lord Jesus they're like well what about the love part Jesus says if you love me you'll obey my commands that's my love language <laughs> right Amen. what do we do with that We've become very self-indulgent. We don't understand that we have a duty towards God quite often. And our fallen society has this condition and it's conditioned us to revolt and it goes along with our fallen nature. We revolt against anything that does not stimulate us or entertain us or that we agree with all the time. We're extremely polarized. And so we prioritize our lives often around pleasures and we prioritize our lives around those things that we enjoy and we tend to neglect those things that we don't enjoy. (laughs) And not as Americans, but as God's sons, He has called us to follow Him. He's called us to obedience. And, And our allegiance to Him is shown very, very clearly in our devotion towards the Lord and His people and His purposes. What if I just decided I wasn't going to show up on church for four Sundays? But you're the pastor and you get paid. Take that out of the equation. What happens? How does that affect the relationships? How does that affect the body of Christ, the ministry? You know what I'm saying? And and, and look at Pastor Tom. Week in, week out, tirelessly working two jobs. Always there at the church. If not, he's doing some kind of ministry stuff. Lord forbid he ever has a vacation where he has someone step in and teach for him. He's just tirelessly plugging away. Dedicated to the Lord. Out of a love and a devotion to him. Nothing stops it. He just keeps going. Why? And I'm not, I've known Tom. Our priorities, man, are clearly shown in the management of our time and what we spend our money on and what we do with our talents that God has given us. And I'm not saying they're all bad and I'm not trying to be legalistic about it. I'm just convicted. (laughs) I'm convicted, guys. 
about these things. God has given me a calling and he's given me a, a fight to fight and a race to run and, and a faith to keep. And I'd rather not. Anyone else? I'd rather not. I'd rather do it when it's convenient or it's fun or there's food or coffee or whatever it might be. You know what I'm saying? Anybody else? Prayer meeting? Sunday? First service. It's too early. Second service. We only have one service. But I'm just saying. I've been there. And you can just see the crowds. First service is usually really old people because they can't sleep anyways, right? All the older people say amen. Second service, kind of people with kids. But third service, like everybody's like young. They're like, I can't even get out of bed before 10 or whatever it is. It's all about convenience. And so the church kind of just makes it to where, um, hey, uh, can you please, oh, you know, I've got to make sure they show up. And so here's the great time for you. And you just create a culture of wusses. <laughs> Stand up, fight, run. It's Christ we follow. Amen? Yeah, I, and I'm speaking to myself, by the way. In 2 Timothy, Paul reiterates to Timothy when he says, No one engages, entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. We're no longer civilians. We're soldiers. Luke 17, 7-10 says the same as Jesus speaks about the duty of a servant. And you can look at it. When a, when a master comes in from, you know, from, from working, wherever he's working, the servant comes in, is he supposed to say to the servant, oh, hey, can I get you something to eat? No, the servant continues his duty and feeds the master and takes care of him. Jesus is our master. And when we've done our duty, what do we say? Oh, you've done a good job, great job, you've done the bare requirements of actually what you're called to do. No, that is what we're called to do as the redeemed. Our life is no longer ours, it is his. He is the Lord, and He is a good master. So gracious, so kind, so loving towards us. Amen? Paul gave Timothy a clear command here. And in other places, fight the good fight. Engage in the good fight. It is your duty as a son. Now notice also that Paul says in verse 18, of 1 Timothy 1.18, This charge I what? Commit to you. I entrust to you. Paul's charge was entrusting Timothy to continue the fight. It was something that was entrusted to him. Not only commanded, but it was something that was of great importance and it was put in his court to follow through with. It was entrusted to him. Jesus had entrusted things to Paul and Paul now is entrusting to Timothy. What has he entrusted to him? The truth, the gospel. Timothy was entrusted to proclaim and protect and proliferate the truth of the gospel. And we too are entrusted by God in this war to fight the good fight. And I think it's important to distinguish that the fight we are engaged in is the good fight. We're involved in a lot of dumb fights. Men like to fight. Actually, that's why he talks about Timothy and worship. He says, man, the first thing I want those guys to do is I want them to not fight each other. I want them to raise holy hands. I want them to pray. Right? Because men have a tendency towards anger. Myself included. 
We have a tendency towards anger. And he wants to take that and says, no, worship. Women have a tendency towards vanity, the way they look. And all those types of things. And he, and he addresses that as well. Women shouldn't have the outward appearance. But the, the thing that God desires is, is the beauty of an inward heart. And so he's addressing those things in our worship. But men, what are we to do? We are to worship God. We're with a good fight. We have a good fight. A noble fight. It's a beautiful fight. And let me explain. It's funny. Marcus and Arthur and Nick and myself, Tuesday mornings, we were together. And we were they were helping me plan for this. And, and so we looked up the Greek, the meaning of good here. What is a good fight? What does that mean? And here's what it means. It means beautiful, handsome, excellent, imminent, choice, surpassing Precious, useful, suitable, commendable, admirable. Jesus used the word often to describe good fruit. Good tree, good soil, good seed. That's what's behind that. That's what Jesus was seeking. What kind of goodness? Beautiful, excellent. It's the beautiful fight that we're in. The admirable fight. The fight of the kingdom of light against the kingdom of darkness. Proclaiming the truth over the lie. Amen. You've been brought into that fight. To overcome evil with good. With Him. The fight of the Spirit over the flesh. The fight to proclaim and and live the message of forgiveness offered by the one true, holy, and righteous God towards His enemies through His sacrificed Son on the cross. The gospel. The peace offering. We get to proclaim the peace offering to the enemy of God. Why? Because we were enemies of God and we found peace. And now we, who have received the grace of God, we extend it to others. It is our duty. And it is our joy. We are in the good fight. And I want to say also that when it says that we are to fight the good fight, the word fight in the Greek is the word agon. Guess what that sounds like? Agony. We are to agonize in the good fight. That's what that word means. It is not like we are going to Fight the good fight. We're agonizing. That's what that word means. It's an agonizing fight, guys. And we'll speak more about that tomorrow. But the fight we fight is agonizing. It is the cross of Christ in and through us against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And how we wage this fight of faith against our enemy. How do we do that? How do we fight? And this is the aspect of the fight I'd like to focus on for the brief remainder of our time it's spiritual warfare, guys. We are invite, we're involved in a fight, but how do we actually put the gloves on? How do we fight? Flip over to Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to run through verses 10 through 20. You guys know these. A lot of you do. But this is how we fight. Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. This is what our fight looks like. Starting in verse 10, Paul says... Says what? Finally, be strong in the Lord and in whose mighty power? In His 
mighty power. Men, the world gets their strength from self. Just watch football. And how they pump their chest. Just watch UFC or whatever it is. And it's all about them. It's all about who they are and how bad they are and all the strength. And the pride is sickening. Yes, they can do it. But that is their strength. And that strength fades like grass. Those of you who used to play football know what I'm talking about. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I don't want to get hit like that anymore. But our strength is where? It's found in the Lord. That's where we get the strength for this battle that we are engaged in. The Lord. That is the source of our strength. And so our strength for the fight against Satan comes from the Lord. And notice verse 10. We are strong in his mighty power. And so the Lord, as our strength, he commands us in verse 11. Paul says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. God has given us the means of taking our stand against the devil's schemes. Here we are commanded to put on the full armor of God. Notice it's another suggestion for y'all. What does he say? Put it on. Man, put it on the full armor of God. I didn't even know I had armor. A lot of us are running around in our underwear. What are we talking about? We got armor? Yes, you've got armor. Put it on. He's going to describe it in just a second. But putting on the armor enables us to make our stand against the devil's schemes. So we must put it on. The armor is our lifelong companion as a Christian. It gives us divine power from God to engage in spiritual warfare against Satan. And Satan fights dirty. He fights dirty, guys. He's not going to, he does not usually frontally attack you. He is a schemer and he is deceitful and he attacks in those ways. The word there for schemes, that we can fight against the devil's schemes or devices, here it carries the idea of Satan being crafty, cunning, and deceptive. And the word is used of an animal like the cougars that are apparently surrounding us that silently stalk their prey and suddenly pounce on them when they leave here tonight. Because they weren't expecting it because he's not going to be sitting in the middle of the road going, come on. He's going to take you when you do not expect it from the side. That is his nature. That is how he works. Satan primarily works through stealth and deception and the theater he wages his war in and through is the world around us. That's how he gets to us. James talks about when sin happens, he says, don't blame God for your sin. It actually starts within you. You've got sin within you. And what happens is you are tempted when you are lured and enticed away by your own evil desires. What does that mean? Some of you guys are hunters and some of you guys are fishers, fishermen or whatever you call it. And, and, and what do you do? Do you, do you take a can of beer and throw it out there and try to reel in a you know, some kind of a bear or whatever it is. And maybe <clears throat> you're weird, but you do something that appeals to what their, their nature. So you do with a fish, you put something and if that doesn't work, what do you do? You change bait and you throw it back in there. You do, you do a lure, you change power, but you want a different color on there. Why? 
Because you're appealing to its nature and eventually it's going to do what? It's going to bite. What do you think this world is? It's set up to do. How many of you are know about marketing? I think some Christians could be the best marketers in the world because we know how the enemy thinks. Because, oh yeah, you just got to do this. You got to put a half-naked chick with a hamburger and they're going to buy it. What are you talking? What are they appealing to? Desires. And a normal person would go, whatever. And some people look at that and go, that's so silly. But he'll get them in the area of their intellect. Or he'll get them in philosophy. Or he'll get them whatever it is. Why? Because he's a hunter. He's a roaring lion seeking who he may devour. He's after you. He can't get God directly. So he's going to go after you. To render your worship of him, your affection towards him, your devotion, to make you to stop fighting, to stop running, to lose the faith, to be totally useless and on the sidelines as a Christian. Because that's all he can do. He can't take away your salvation. So Satan fights dirty. And he uses the world to do it. John warns us in 1 John 2, 15-16, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Satan uses the sinful, fallen world around us. What we see and what we desire and the wisdom of the world, all that to lure and entice us into sin. And therefore dishonoring God. And entering into a life of fruitfulness. And so Paul says, put on the armor of God so that you can make your stand against the devil and his devices. Why? For our, verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against North Korea. Although North Korea very well might nuke you off the map. But let me tell you what is behind North Korea, what is behind America and all these other things. Satanic influence and power. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces in every heavenly realm. And brothers, our fight is not physical. This is speaking of demonic, and the the fallen angels and, and Satan, all the ranks and influences. I mean, Satan is obviously the most powerful, but there are ranks and principalities all the way down to the mailroom angels, to all the way to the top CEO, you know, demons. So to speak. But our enemy is not physical. Satan's demons are spirits. They are fallen angels. And the weapons we are to use are spiritual weapons. The 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5, write it down, says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not meat. They're not fleshly. But mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity into the obedience of Christ. The weapons we have are mighty. And notice they pull down strongholds. How? They cast down arguments. Where's the war that needs to be fought in our culture? It's in the minds of people. They believed a lie. And so we fight the lie with the truth. Who has the truth? God has the truth. We have the truth. And we tear down those arguments with the truth of the word of God. 
That is what Jesus did. He confronted the lie with the truth when tempted by Satan as he fought back with, it is written. So verse 13, therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your, your waist. And because we don't have time to go through much of this very fast in depth, I just want to say that the belt of truth is, is not the word of God in itself. That is the sword of the spirit. The belt of truth is the fact that when you, Paul is looking at a Roman soldier and what he's doing is he's looking at a Roman soldier and a Roman soldier had like a tunic they pull over the head, like a big old cloth with a thing cut out for the head. It would just go down and they would have this belt that all their weapons would be on. So they'd have this, this flailing thing and they'd have this belt. And what they do is when it's time for war, they pick up their tunic and they tuck it in their belt. And the idea is that our lives are rooted in the truth. We don't have any loose ends that the enemy can grab and pull over our head and run us through. Our life is conformed to the truth of God. You want to have defense against the enemy, conform your life to what God says. Take those loose ends and start tucking them in. Those are the ones he grabs onto. You know it. I know it. Amen. It's very important. He's called the father of lies, Satan is, in John 8, 48. In Revelation 12, 9, it says that Satan deceives the whole world. In 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so do his messengers. Satan is a liar and he uses lies and deceit in the world to attack us. And the first line of defense against lies is the truth. Paul says, stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist. You want those loose ends tied up. And so to fight the good fight, we have to have all those loose ends conformed to the truth. And this means, we, this means men, that we are committed. We are men who are committed to the truth. Secondly, to fight the good fight, we are to put on the breastplate of righteousness. The scriptures clearly teach both Positional and practical righteousness. What is righteousness? Right standing with God. And we'll speak more about this later on. But Romans 3, 21 through 22 speaks of positional righteousness. It means you've been justified. When you believed upon Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were declared righteous before God. That is positional righteousness. That can't be taken away. That's who you are. And then you go on and you read in Romans, uh, I think, 5 or 6, and it talks about practical righteousness. And I believe this is what he's talking about. In other words, because of what God has done to you, now you live righteously. You've been made, you've been made right with God, now you live it. This is obedience to the word of God and he's saying put on the full armor. It involves preparation and devotion to the truth, tying up the loose limbs in our lives. And, and, and so make no mistake, we're not going to go into battle thinking we're going to survive without being obedient to God. We must be living righteously in order to fight. We put on good works. We put on the righteous living. We put off the deeds of the flesh. Holy living is the, breath, the breastplate of righteousness. Let me ask you, do you have any kinks in your armor? Any... Acts of willful dis- disobedience, willful sin that is going on, unchanging, unaddressed, sin unconfessed, unrepented. If we do, brothers, we are we're vulnerable. 
we're going to get run through. But when we walk in holiness, when we walk under the Lord, when we walk confessing, when we walk in the light, we have fellowship with Him. With that breastplate of righteousness. Verse 15. Let's go through these quickly. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now, this could mean, hey, get ready to preach the gospel. But I don't think that's what he means. I think he's talking defensively. When you get attacked, you stand on the fact that you have peace with God. You have been made right with God. You have peace with God. You have received the Lord Jesus. The war between you and God is over. You are declared innocent, righteous. You are his son. And you stand on that when the enemy comes with his lies. Amen. Amen. That's the gospel we stand on. And I believe that's what it's talking about. The defense we have. So our feet need to be equipped so that we stand firm when the enemy attacks. And it is the peace that we have with God that we stand on. In addition to this, we are to take up the shield of faith. Which you can use to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. The Roman soldiers would have two, two shields. One was a round one that was used for hand-to-hand combat. And one was a giant one, like two feet wide and four feet long. And they'd take it, they'd slam it into the ground. And the enemy would just fire arrows and they would just duck their whole body behind that thing. The arrows would go by. And what was really cool is they put the phalanx, and some of you guys know about that. They put tons of these guys together and they put them over the top. And then the archers would be behind it and they'd fire arrows and they'd duck back under. And they would advance that way and the enemy couldn't get through. But the thing is, is the enemy would light, um, they would light their, they dip their arrows in tar and they would light them and they'd fire them at the guy, hoping to someone without, with their shields down. You gotta have your shields up, guys. And, and they're hoping to hit someone. And can you imagine being in that line and the guy next to you gets hit with fire and he lights on fire? What do you think is gonna to happen to that line? It's gonna cause chaos. And when the enemy hits you with the fiery arrows and you start the light on fire, guess who that affects? Everyone else. And so she says to pick up the shield of faith. I like what David Guzik says about these fiery darts, they can include thoughts and feelings and imaginations and fears and lies. John MacArthur says that they can include seducing temptations, impurity, lustfulness, greed, vanity, materialism, pride, anger, impatience, covetousness. Guys, we have incoming all day long, all the time. Temptation to lust, to never be content, to covet, to be ungrateful, to hate, to slander, to steal, to hold grudges, to gossip, gossip, to not trust the Lord, to meet our own met desires without waiting and trusting on the Lord. Basically, the fire arrows are temptations to act upon our impulses that are contrary to Christ. So Paul says to take up the shield of faith. Faith in what? In the word of God. Trust God instead of whatever those lies are. And you've got to know the word in order to trust in it. Amen? Jesus responds constantly. It is written. And so we must pick up and use the shield of faith. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit. Some of you have been hit in the head with a war hammer. Because you've lost your hope. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8-9 says that the helmet of salvation is the hope of salvation. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and the love of a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, salvation has got three components. We, we were saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved. It teaches that. Justification, sanctification, glorification, all three of those. And that's that third salvation that I think he's talking about here, which is the helmet of salvation. Yes, I have been saved. I know I'm being saved. I'm being sanctified. But God will glorify. He will make true on what he says. And that, when you're in the heat of the battle, guys, and the enemy's trying to play mind games, you trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He will bring you home. Hebrews 4.12. I mean, Hebrews, I'm sorry. Uh, I lost my place there. Anyways. We gotta pick up the sword of the spirit as well. It's both offensive and defensive. Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of the soul and the spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from its sight, but all things are naked and open to the eye of him who must give account. Men, to fight this fight, arm yourselves with the sword. Commit seriously to time studying the Word of God. Devote yourself to these things. It is your duty. As Paul exhorted Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the Word of Truth. Know how to handle the sword. And lastly, prayer. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions. To fight the good fight, man, we must be men of prayer. I like to call it artillery, calling it artillery, but really, notice Paul in those passages, you can read them. The mighty apostle, what is he asking the church to do? Pray for him. Why? What is he asking for? He's asking for boldness. I thought this was Paul, the super apostle. Where does he get his boldness from? From the Lord. How does he get the boldness to do what he's called to do? Because the church is praying for him. He's under attack all the time. Are you under attack? Are you finding it difficult to follow after Jesus day after day? Are you finding that it is a real fight and there's agony going on in your life? What do you think you need? You need prayer. You need brothers to stop talking just about football and to get into your life and lay hands on you and to seek God on your behalf. To call in the heavy artillery. And by the way, I love talking about my dumb chargers. But I'm serious about this. Pray for one another. Be men of prayer. Put on the armor, guys. Fight the good fight every day until the end. And by the way, it's Jesus who's fought it for us. We follow in his footsteps. All the power to do this is in him. We abide in him. As we abide in him, we're empowered to do this. Don't ever think that we can do anything apart from him. But nevertheless, he commands us to do it. Amen? That's faith being worked out. Let's pray. Lord God. I pray that as we are engaged in the fight and it is an agonizing one Lord that this weekend you would begin a deep work within our hearts that we would be men who 
stand. That we would be men who put our foot in the ground and who lean into the things of the kingdom. Lord, and as we feel the burn of, of the things we desire from the world aching in our, in our souls, Lord, that we would, we would deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow you and that, Lord, we would be like those men planted by a stream and whose season bear much fruit. And so I'm asking, Lord, that every heart in here would be strengthened. Every soul would be lifted up and bound up, Lord, that Jesus, you would come and minister. And that we would be those men who run, those men who fight, and those men who keep the faith. So that at the end of our lives, Lord, we'd be able to stand and say, I've poured it all out. I've poured it all out, and now I just, I wait for your reward, reward Lord. That there would be no regrets. And so, God, we come before you and we ask for strength. We ask you for strength to fight. And, Lord, we ask for your forgiveness where we failed to fight. Lord, will you forgive us of not even picking up the gloves, not even engaging to assume that Christianity is based on our terms, that our relationship is that we are Lord and you are not. So, Lord, take back your lordship, Lord, in our hearts and our lives. Take back full authority. Start calling the shots. Start leading. Start calling us, Lord. Start moving us into areas that are uncomfortable, that we may be duty-bound in love towards you and devotion, that we would be like those men who ran across the enemy lines and slaughtered hundreds in order to get King David a cup of water and bring it back to him because of our love for you, Lord Jesus. Let us fight. Not with swords, but in the Spirit. Let us not use the wrong sword like Peter, Father. (laughs) But the right one, like your son. And so we give this to you now. Lord, we commit this time to you. In the name of Jesus, amen.